Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, everyone. This morning, just a couple of recognitions. Today is International Women's Day, and uh, although you can't see it, my, my tie is, is purple. Uh, somewhat purple, and that's uh, in recognition to all the you know the, the wonderful, wonderful uh, women of the world that you know keep us safe, keep us going. And I've always said, if, if women were in charge of presidencies and in countries that are currently in turmoil, this wouldn't be happening. And uh, so we we have to move in. The, we're moving in the right direction. So that's something that I can certainly attest. Uh, this morning, uh, Dr. Jeff Himes is going to introduce our speaker, and I think everyone knows Jeff. I have certainly known Jeff for. For quite a while. I, I was his uh, intern and resident many years ago at uh, Hartford Hospital uh, when he was a spanking new attending in uh, pediatric gastroenterology. And uh, as you will see today, he, uh, he linked uh, very closely to our speaker um, as I think they actually at some point maybe even had coffee or an, uh, and a, a lunch in the cafeteria at Boston Children's many years ago as they were you know in, during the, the process of training and Jeff will give us an update on that in just a minute. Uh, Jeff is a renowned, renowned, world-renowned uh, pediatric gastroenterologist, really one of the experts in inflammatory bowel disease. He really literally wrote the textbook uh, that everyone reads right now and uh, he's also someone who is absolutely adored by his patients, and I was reading through one of the comments from from a patient recently that uh, they're coming online. This is Dr. Himes is excellent. My daughter has been experiencing more IBS symptoms, and Dr. Himes told us she would need a reset of her medication, and he took care of us. My daughter was struggling and feeling hopeless until until we met Dr. Himes. He was phenomenal, compassionate, and widely knowledgeable, and for the first time, made both of us feel like we're on a good path to things getting better. Thank you, and I can attest to that because my son was his patient many years ago and made us feel very comfortable. And uh, so, Jeff, uh, I can go on about all the accolades, but you know the most important one that I know about you is the compassionate care for your patients, and that has made a huge difference in, in tens of thousands of kids that have come through your doors. And today, you've invited an outs outstanding speaker, uh, uh, Dr. Leleko, uh, who will talk about emulsifiers and intestinal health and introduction. I'm going to ask you to now introduce Dr. Leleko, Jeff. So, uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It is really my distinct pleasure to introduce Neil Lalaiko, who today's Grand Round speaker. By way of background, Neil attended Brooklyn College and then New York Medical College, followed by residency at Mount Sinai. He entered two years of military service in the Air Force and was stationed at a strategic air command base, Rickenbacker Air Force Base in Columbus, where he was the only pediatrician on the base which as he notes, made the on-call schedule very easy to compose. He owned an old English sheepdog named Pooh, whose name would prove prescient about Neil's eventual career choice. Upon completing military service, Neil and his family moved to Boston, where he earned a PhD in nutritional biochemistry and metabolism from MIT, and completed a fellowship in pediatric GI at Boston Children's, which is where Neil and I met. By that point, he was already an accomplished clinician. He and I shared in the care of a desperately ill teenager that we literally still talk about 40 years later, and it was the start of a cherished friendship. After three years in Boston, Neil moved back to New York to start the Division of Pediatric GI at Mount Sinai, 
During his 23-year career there, he built a full-service clinical research and training program. He directed the NIH General Clinical Research Center and for one year served as acting chairman of the department. His research produced sentinel data on the role of nucleotides in gut metabolism. He left Mount Sinai in 2002 to build another highly respected pediatric GI program at Brown and Hasbro Children's. After almost 17 years there, he returned to his native New York to assume leadership of the pediatric IBD program at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital at Columbia University. Neil takes particular pride in the more than 50 fellows he has trained, many of whom have gone on to leadership roles in our field. He is a truly outstanding writer and has published almost 200 peer reviewed articles. Digging into his nutrition roots, Neil has developed a profound interest in dietary emulsifiers, which some believe may play a role in the epidemic of inflammatory bowel disease we are seeing. I was delighted when he accepted our invitation to talk on the subject at today's Grand Rounds and look forward to today's talk. Neil, all yours. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, for your generous introduction. As Jeff implied, we've known each other for a couple of years. Um, my objective this morning is to introduce to all of you, and most especially the non-GI folks in the audience, the subject of food additives as distinct from the more general topic of food processing. At the same time, I do not ever want to move too far from emphasizing the overarching importance of eating well and healthy for all of us. Now, you should be able to see in your upper right-hand corner of the slide, um, there are numbers there. We're gonna be moving uh, through this talk in about 40 minutes. Um, if you have any questions, you can relate back to the numbers. I also want to uh, appreciate the fact that some of the questions may not be manageable during this presentation. So my last slide will have an e my email which you can copy down or take a picture of if you want to contact me for any further discussions. Okay, so we have just learned that, okay, over the next 40 minutes, this is sort of going to be the um, way we're going to go. By finishing up my introduction, I'm gonna try and present the big picture, immune-mediated inflammatory bowel diseases, inflammatory diseases. We'll get down to the nitty gritty around slide 18 on emulsifiers. And then I'm going to present to you in a diagrammatic fashion, uh, different uh, ways of um, visualizing what I'm talking about. And since there's clear evidence that diet and uh, dietary emulsifiers have an impact, we're gonna discuss therapeutic diets and their aspects. And then uh, I'll summarize. And my favorite slide is the last slide. So if you wanna see that last slide, you have to hang around, okay? Uh, okay, so as groups have migrated from economically developing countries with relatively low incidence of inflammatory bowel disease to economically more developed countries with higher IBD incidence, their incidence has uh, aligned with that of their new home. This isn't new news to many of you. Um, and in my next slide, I want to emphasize that um, some, there have been many, many studies on this. Some are far better than others. I like this slide because it makes several points. If you look at the subcontinent, Indian subcontinent, those people who've migrated to North America have had an increased IBD incidence. At the same time, those who've migrated to the Scandinavian countries and to UK, similar things have 
what happened. But what's fascinating is that this increase in the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease is mimicked by an increase in the incidence of multiple sclerosis, an increase in the incidence of systemic lupus erythematosus, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, therefore, there's a commonality here, and I think that we are going to be moving in a direction of describing these diseases all as immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. At the same time, we have to be aware, while we focus on these individual diseases, there's a bigger picture. And the World Health Organization identifies approximately 71% of the 58 million global deaths as being associated with, a, with what are called NCDs, or non-communicable diseases. Of those non-communicable diseases, about 40% are related to diet and lifestyle. That means that about 16 million people each year succumb, lose healthy, happy uh, time in their lives because of preventable causes. Whenever we see lifestyles in the literature, it seems to relate to sedentary versus active styles, but it's more complex. But obviously, today, we're going to be focusing on diet. Um, there is a consensus, a growing consensus, that nutrition and exercise-related habits developed in childhood impact individual well-being for life. Okay. When we make recommendations about diet, there are certain things that have to be acknowledged if we're going to have credibility and some good effect. One, there has to be a scientific basis for our recommendations. And that underlies all of our concerns, all of our concerns. Excuse me? OK. OK. Um, some, um, some, am I being heard? Am I being heard? Somebody may have them. Somebody may have them. OK. I can hear you well. I'm sorry? Go okay. ahead. Uh, we we okay. hear you. So what I was saying is that diet recommendations to be credible must have a scientific basis. At the same time, if we want them to be meaningful, we have to consider the social determinants of health so that our patients and our populations can, uh, can benefit. And then there are obviously limits imposed by age uh, of our patients, whether we're talking about um, infants uh, at the breast, beyond that, toddlers, uh, children, mid-aged children, and adolescents, all of which have different ways of dealing with their um, relationship with foods, and then any other factors. But that brings us now, you have to get down to talking about food technology, because that's what this is largely going to be about. There are two aspects, the industrial aspect and the science aspect. The industry, the food technology industry is not going away, okay? Food technology industry is going to be a $342 billion industry in the next five years. There is a legitimacy, I guess, when we look at the industrial component, because it's commercial, it's an industry that sells foods. Um, and uh, we compare that to science, where we think we have some sort of higher calling. But the, real, the, the reality is that um, they both are important. When it comes to food technology and processed foods, and I'm not going to wax poetic about it, this particular reference that I put up here um, is on processed foods, contributions to nutrition. Um, it's just a reminder that we're not going to be successful as we try to provide healthier diets if we just 
paint everything as a negative picture. We have to be focused and scientifically based. That's a critical uh, recurring theme. The authors of that prior paper that um, pointed out that there are certain things that processed foods contribute. So they point out that approximately half of the dietary fiber, dietary calcium, a third of the vitamin D and a substantial amount of iron, folate and B12 is made available by the processing of foods. And they acknowledge the negatives that too much energy provided from too much fat with too much sugars and too much salt um, all have to be dealt with. They're all big problems. By definition, 100% of the additives are in processed foods. There's a historical context for food processing, largely based on the need to feed military troops, a sad commentary, but more uplifting, especially in light of, you know, when we look at the newspapers, it's pretty depressing when we look at the news, but uh, the country is making, our country is making strong uh, progress towards going to Mars. It's quite serious. And it's a big deal if you're going to spend a year flying to Mars and a certain amount of time there and a certain amount, one has to come up with rations for that trip, food. And uh, in fact, many, the whole concept before our elemental diets was started back in the early 1950s, when it was thought that astronauts going, to the, going into space would need to consume foods that had very little waste uh, so, so that um, develop, getting rid of waste products would be less of an issue. That was sort of dashed somewhat. Our second astronaut, as I recall, Alan Shepard, took a ham sandwich into space, and that was his commentary on, this, on these foods. When I look in PubMed for process for food technology, it becomes somewhat interesting. There's a, you can get page after page of interesting and novel references that are not exposed to us. Um, I made a copy of some, and I'll just give you an idea of what is involved in that field. Um, the United Nations has a 2030 agenda to provide food security for everybody. And this particular paper talks about popularizing and demystifying the uses of unconventional food plants, ancestral grains, flowers, meliponic cultures, that's um, stingless bees, uh, edible insects, and other sources of non-nutrients. And that's a challenge. So that's part and parcel of what we talk about processing and technology. But we're going to try and stay focused on food additives. When you, as I have learned in the last year or two years, this is a very difficult subject to understand. There are contradictions in the literature. There are uh, vague commentaries that you take. The, there are statements made that sound very authoritative. And when you go and try and find out, um, go to the primary source, the primary sources doesn't say what, uh, what it's claimed to be said. But we should be aware that the term food additives, there are three or four categories, three categories, generally regarded as safe, about 450 items, around 3,000 direct food additives, and then a certain number of indirect food additives. Any paper you read or anything you read talks about that, may be talking about any or all of these, and people are not discriminating. A couple of key issues here. Indirect food additives are items that are not intended to be consumed as food, such as pieces of packaging that fall into the food. I'm not discussing them at the moment. Those items that are generally regarded as safe, have a, there's a history. Back in the 1950s, I believe it was, there was a very popularly used, um, 50s and into the 60s, uh, artificial sweetener, cyclamates. 
it became associated with bladder cancer. And there was a big hubbub. Unfortunately, it did not really persist. It was sort of a short term and historically about checking the safety of our foods. The in order to save, and this is a quote, manufactures the burden of proving that the foods were safe, a substantial number of items were put into a generally regarded as safe list. The mechanism by which this was accomplished is not transparent. You cannot, or let me rephrase that, I cannot look through the PubMed, look through, go online and actually identify how these things were approved. They, there were applications made, and those applications for each additive, uh, I believe, are in the care of the manufacturers. Following those first 450, essentially a similar process for the direct food additives, all these other thousands of items. Not a lot of transparency there. Okay, No way to really see what the actual studies are. I would also add that in those at that time period, it seems when you review the literature that if you gave a mouse, if you gave an animal a large amount of an additive uh, and they didn't die and they had normal offspring and they didn't develop cancer, that seems to me to be the extent of defining safety. Okay, that may be unfair, but I cannot go beyond that. That seems to be fairly clear. Uh, at that point in time, nobody imagined or heard or talked extensively about microbiome and all the things we've talked about today. The International Organization for Food, whatever, has uh, five categories of processed foods, and they're virtually the same as the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, but I prefer the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So when they talk about processed foods, there are three categories here and two on the next slide. We talk about minimally processed foods. These are supposed to be um, pre-prepped for consumer convenience, things that are freshly wrapped, so forth. You can read along with me, obviously. Foods processed at their peak, frozen stuff, um, hopefully they even uh, include certain canned vegetables. Sweeteners, spices, oils, you can colors, preservatives, etc. I am concerned about these, but the general consensus of when people look around, this is sort of a mid-category, and you sort of are expected, if you're eating something that's sweet or if it's spicy, it's assumed you know what you're getting. Um, I'm not certain that I'm so comfortable with that definition. And then these two groups, the more heavily processed foods, the so-called ready-to-eat foods, um, crackers, chips, and then the most heavily processed foods, frozen and pre-made meals. Now, these are worrisome. I don't know if I'm, well, I'm sure I'm dating myself when I talk about TV dinners. I don't know if anybody in the audience has uh, ever even heard of that. I'm sure some of us have. But these were dinners that were prepared that you could buy uh, in the frozen food counter. They were aluminum trays. I remember my mother who worked um, all day. Uh, occasionally, it was a treat. She would bring home these TV dinner, a TV dinner, fried chicken, Swanson fried chicken TV dinner. Contained some chicken, fried chicken, a tray, a little bit of uh, potato, and probably some veggies. Similar to what we see sometimes in the, uh, for a while, the uh, airlines adapted to it. Those TV dinners uh, have morphed into something called hungry man dinners. And I, I'm not familiar with them anymore, but some, some of you may be. They're very heavily processed. Uh, additionally, during the COVID, I had a cousin, uh, one of my cousins, 
uh, spent a lot of time with us. We were sort of her, uh, we were sort of a pod, I think the term is, and she's a vegetarian. So I thought, oh, this is a chance for me to learn firsthand more about vegetarian uh, vegetarianism. There are a huge number of these heavily processed foods that are vegetarian, and it's and and seeing vegetarian does not reassure you in any way, shape, or form of the safety um, or the quality of these foods. So as I've said, there are over 3,000 additives, 450 generally regarded safe. There's no transparency about these foods. And um, there is currently, most concerning, no mechanism to even encourage the collection of data on the safety of these additives. Okay, If you're a manufacturer and you are producing foods, you have no interest in following up or contributing to a study that's going to show that the stuff you've had in your food for the last umpteen years or that even that you've just put in is unsafe. It's been classified as safe by the government. That's all that matters. Okay. Um, last week we had published a summary, uh, a paper, and this cartoon sort of fits the bill for this talk. This is where we are. This is our dilemma. I've sort of created this, I like to think that I've created this um, uh, uh, cauldron. Here's this cauldron with all of these additives being boiled, um, sort of a witch's brew. I took some uh, liberties in calling it that or referring to it that way. Uh, and the food manufacturers say emulsifiers are safe. They've been approved by the government. The food technologists um, are not being hired to do current uh, uh uh, toxicology studies, they relate back to studies done 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago, and they're saying the emulsifiers are probably safe. The FDA throws up its hands and is also saying, hey, look, they're not touching this. They got their hands full of a lot of other things, and these are generally regarded as safe for many of them. All of us, those of us who are practicing, um, to ask, what's an emulsifier? We'll come back to that. So here we have pregnant women eating these foods, babies consuming them in the bottle, all these other luscious foods, and we don't have a clue. That's what's so disconcerting. We don't have a clue. So what's an emulsifier? Well, there's no consensus definition. That was a bit of a shock to me. I was a chemistry major in college. I don't know if I learned this in college or perhaps even in high school chemistry, but emulsifiers were supposed to be things that allowed you to combine water and water-soluble agents with fat and fat cycle agents, okay? That was obvious. I would have argued to the death. I would have said, hey, come on, give me a break. That's, everybody knows what an emulsifier is, but now they include agents that stabilize starch and protein complexes through manipulation. And here's the word, I should have underlined it, but here you wanna be a little bit uh, spooked about this. They, through this they, they produce unique molecules Okay, that's the term. Oh, unique. I can't get very much evidence on the, the, these are complexes and the unique molecules involved in food processing. And so they are now put into a category of food stabilizers, thickness, and gelling agents. So that is what a food, an emulsifier is when we talk about it. Um, as food stabilizers and thickness and gelling agents, they impact the texture firmness and stability, and thus the palatability of foods. And food technology and manufacturers, and they're, they're very good at this. Um, they can manipulate these things to make awful, almost anything taste very good. And so they ubiquitously uh, added 
to everything, okay? And they and you find them in the foods that we enjoy the most, you know, baked goods, frozen foods, ice cream. It's not a reassuring picture. The manuscript that we just had published summarized information on eight widely used additives. Some people refer to them as emulsifiers, but it doesn't matter what, as you can see, what you refer to them almost doesn't matter. Several were put into this generally regarded as safe list and a few were food additives. In our manuscript, we made an error and classified it um, uh, uh, additional, two additional, these two also, carboxymethylcellulose and carrageenan as food additives, but we were wrong and that correction is gonna appear online. Okay. Um, the most commonly used emulsifier is lecithin. It's considered natural, it's a product that's found in cell membranes. Okay, but here is, this is to inform you about how our regulatory agencies are regarding these things. Lecithin, again, if you went, if you go to your chemistry textbook, lecithin is phosphatidylcholine. Phosphatidylcholine is lecithin. But the regulatory guidelines allow manufacturers to apply the term lecithin to emulsifiers that contain phosphatidylcholine plus other phosphatidyllipids. Okay, so if you're a rigorous researcher and um, decide I am going to take lecithin and see how it impacts my animals or this experiment, the chances that the lecithin that you buy pure from your chemical company is are going to be the same as what is in your food are virtually nil. Okay, having said that, there's not a lot of harsh or negative data on lecithin. Um, but I think this is exemplary of the, of what's going on. Here's the chemistry. This is phosphatidylcholine, the uh, fatty acids. Here's the choline portion. This phosphatidylserine, ethanolamine, inositol, some other agents with different uh, fatty acids. Um, and that's can, all that can be lecithin. There are two of these agents, polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose. Um, that have drawn more recent scrutiny. And we're gonna talk about them in a little bit, a little bit more. But there's, no, there's an abundance of, a growing abundance of evidence that they do impact our microbiome. Okay. Carrageenan, I'll talk about in a moment. This is the chemical uh, constituents of polysorbate 80. It's a C32 molecule. Uh, carboxymethylcellulose is a small molecule, eight carbons and carrageenan is again complex. So these two agents are specifically shown to impact our intestinal microbiome. And this fits into a general model that promotes various inflammatory diseases. I'm a GI doctor. I've spent a good hunk of my career look concerned about inflammatory bowel disease, but this probably has implications beyond IBD to all those immune mediated uh, inflammatory diseases. Now I wanted to show, uh, give you a sense of what we're talking about. I know not everybody's a GI doctor. Here is our intestine caught uh, trans transversely, longitudinally, um, the mucosa, sub muscularis, submucosa. We are gonna be talking about these epithelial cells, this very, very uh, tippy top here, uh, these cells. When we go in, or nowadays when, uh, Dr. Hyams goes in and takes his endoscopic biopsies. The biopsy looks like that. 
and under the microscope, it's pretty neat, okay? And again, here are those epithelial cells. Here you see some lamina propria, some inflammatory cells that are normally there. This is always a nice biopsy. When we see inflammation, and this is, in, this is IBD, but it could in essence be an infection or whatever, this is what happens to our beautiful intestine. These are inflammatory cells. And depending on the extent and degree, they get damaged. The structure, the normal function is obviously um, uh, adversely affected to an extent, a substantial extent. Um, if we take, let me just see if I can go back on that. Yes. So again, we're looking at these inflammatory cells. These are, I'm sorry. We're looking at these epithelial cells, which are these cells, these cells here happen to be, okay? These are the, this is what we're gonna look at with the cartoon. And here we have these epithelial cells. There is a mucus layer on top of this, which has always been considered a protective layer. We have in the normal state, uh, these green bacteria that are considered to be healthy, normal constituents of our microbiome. And we have these red bugs, which are also probably normal constituents of our microbiome. For every individual, this, the impact of these different bugs may be different, okay? But these bacteria have a pro-inflammatory potential. And when emulsifiers, in this case, this has been relatively, this mechanism has been, seems to certainly apply to the carboxymethylcellulose and to the polysorbate 80. Um, we have an activation and a change in the percentages of, of, of germs. There's a decrease in the diversity that favors the adverse bugs, these bugs with the pro-inflammatory potential. They elicit and express lipopolysaccharide and flagellin, and this helps these bugs transverse and stimulate inflammatory cascades. Okay, through as these uh, the zone occludens, they bind to the uh, toll-like receptors, they bind to B-cell receptors, they activate inflammatory cytokines. Okay, so this is what we, in health, this is not good. Other authors present the same picture and emphasize other aspects based on their own research and interest. So this is the same picture as I've just been showing you. I've just been showing you. I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. These are, well, these are these are the same. These are the same. We're having a little technical issue here. A little technical issue here. Um, I'm going to continue, and we'll uh, see. I'm going to continue, and we'll see. Yeah, go go ahead. We we hear you well. Okay, fine. Um, okay, fine. I'm uh, hearing an echo. I'm, I'm hearing an echo. Good night. Okay. Uh, okay, so here we have uh, the epithelial so cells and we have the bacteria. We have this, these authors want to emphasize the genetic susceptibility. Every, we talk about personalized medicine. We talk about the fact that what I am illustrating for you is going to be slightly different. These are general mechanisms, but the actual bugs and everything else may be different from person to person, sibling to sibling. Uh, uh, they're even different factors and probably in identical twins, but there's a genetic susceptibility. There are these other factors um, that we've discussed and the term applied to when the 
normal floor here is uh, is upset and is not functioning completely normally is dysbiosis. It's a microbial dysbiosis. The common factor here is these authors are emphasizing the variety of things that impact the epithelial barrier. Okay, so this is important. Okay, uh, again, another way of looking at this, it's the same mechanism that barrier is impacted and we get the, all of these effector cells are stimulated and um, we get these cascades of inflammatory cytokines. These inflammatory cytokines may be those that mimic uh, or that are found in Crohn's disease, have a Crohn's disease phenotype or UC or various combinations. Now, this is as far as this manuscript, this research, this presentation, this paper went, but others have gone beyond that. And it appears as though the same mechanisms are activate rheumatoid arthritis or, or a cytokine milieu consistent with rheumatoid arthritis, and um, as well as uh, other uh, spinal arthritis and um, uh, psoriatic diseases, et cetera. Uh, beyond that, it is likely that this probably impacts a lot of other diseases as well. Somewhat food for thought is the evidence that here we have the same thing that I've just shown you. Here are the mucosal cells. Here is the inflammatory cascade. And some of this inflammation, some of this impact, biochemical impact, is on the enteric nervous system. I think, and I, this is my um, uh, thoughts on the subject, I think that you ever wonder why when somebody has an upset stomach, they lose their appetite? How do you feel? I don't feel like eating so much today. You know, I wasn't not feeling well, or I'm starting to get better and my appetite's coming back. Well, I suspect that this is part of the mechanism uh, that it's essentially mediated, that it impacts our central nervous system through the enteric nervous system. It also gives pause to all of those GI symptoms, uh, whether it be irritable bowel or other situations or, or that make you think, Gee, this complaint, which we always thought was functional, well, maybe it is functional, maybe it's made up, but maybe there's a biological basis for those pains or those complaints. And uh, we'll, I suspect that in the coming years, we will hear a lot, lot more about this. Finally, the last emulsifier I specifically want to talk about is carrageenan. So carrageenan is from seaweed. Okay. 45 years ago, I was just Jeffrey and I were just talking before we started a little bit about carrageenan. It's from seaweed, and it's had some controversy over time. 45 years ago, when uh, we were fellows, or 40 years ago, I shouldn't have said that, I guess, Jeff. But um, our colleague, John Udall, and uh, one of our mentors, uh, Robert Suskind, got it, there was a, became interested in this. And there, were one, there was a paper published, probably more than one, as I recall, but I recall one, linking this to inflammation and to necrotizing enterocolitis. That data has been con contradicted and then supported and contradicted and then supported, and it is unclear. So what does unclear mean? It means that the European Union does not allow carrageenan in infant formulas. But in the United States, we do. Um, is that reassuring? Uh, I vote in favor of breastfeeding as much as I can. So there's evidence, clear evidence, that diet and dietary additives, additives impact the GI system. And as IBD doctors, um, 
we see this and everybody's always concerned about diet. It is logical that different dietary diets can be uh, been made up and tried for inflammatory bowel disease to treat the symptoms and to treat the inflammation. Okay. Um, there are credible authors doing this work. And for those of you who want to pursue it, I just, this is just a few of the names associated with it, but for exclusive enteral nutrition, Crohn's disease elimination diet, the specific carbohydrate diet, and then Mediterranean diet. Um, Bob Aldesano from CHOP, Ari Levine in Israel, David Suskind in Washington, Ashwin and Anthakrishnan is uh, at MGH, and he has written and participated in writing many articles on uh, in the area. These are all very credible authors. Um, the Medi most recently, the Mediterranean diet was shown to be as effective, but not superior. Non there was a non-superiority comparison between the SCD diet. So let's look at these diets. Exclusive enteral nutrition. Because that's what we, we, our patients know about these and they want to know about this and we want to be informed. Well, it can be a first-line therapy in pediatrics, probably in adults, and it improves symptoms and it may induce remission. Um, and, it and it's presumed to work just the way we've discussed what we've discussed in the last uh, uh, 15 or 20 minutes. It seems to support the barrier function and even have specific positive impacts on anti on the cytokine signaling pathways okay uh but it's you know the enteral diet the exclusive enteral nutrition um there are specific products modulin is used that's a nestle product the nestle will come up again but not everybody adheres to any to the particular product but the original papers did so I, i've included the names nobody wants to be on an oral drinking this stuff for four, six, eight weeks and have the regular diets restricted. Generally speaking, that means that our patients need to be on an NG tube. They're not happy with it. You need a multidisciplinary team, time intensive and costly. So what happens? A lot of patients who started out on exclusive enteral nutrition, we have a new diet, the partial enteral nutrition for Crohn's disease. And some people do okay on this. I have no doubt about its efficacy for two things, helping to restore nutritional, to nutritionally rehabilitate patients who are undernourished. And there's no question that it improves the symptoms of a lot of patients. And I suspect that uh, the evidence shows that for some individuals, there's healing to a certain extent. But I don't know what my patients who are on this are taking. What does partial mental nutrition mean? All I know is that a lot of stuff in the regular foods is not going into them. That I can be reasonably comfortable with, but it doesn't meet the standards of rigor that I think we need in this field. The CDED, okay, our families hear about this. Uh, some of our ultra-Orthodox families who travel back and forth to Israel and have friends bring this up to me all the time, okay? This is a three-phase exclusion diet. In phase one, there you get half of your nutrition from a can and half from a specific food list. In phase two, after six weeks, you only get 25% from a can and 75% from this food list. After another six weeks, um, same thing, but you're allowed one to two free days. I don't know what one to two free days means. Okay, I am concerned about the inflammatory process in my patient um, Moving forward, I am concerned about complications of disease. I have to, it is hard for me 
to make a prediction of any logic about who is going to respond to this treatment and um, how and whether or not, even if they are on this diet, um, I can't compare what one person is eating to what another person is eating. There are certain mandatory foods, some fresh protein, uh, carbohydrate, fruits, and uh, then a lot of allowed foods. I always get a kick whenever I see in some of these things, uh, avocados and kiwis. Um, for many of our patients, they don't know what an avocado or kiwi is, uh, or it's just not available in the neighborhood. Um, and that's a key issue in, for many of these things. Uh, but these are the disallowed foods. I'm not going to comment on the veggies and fruits that are disallowed. But as we get over here, some of these things are concerning. And this looks like a sausage to me. This is ice cream. Uh, looks to me like there's a lot of, uh, I think the technical term is crap in this. I'm not certain about that. Okay. And then the specific carbohydrate diet. Similar issues focused on removing certain things. This was originally a celiac diet that has been adapted um, to for inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, implicit in all of this is that if it works for inflammatory bowel disease, it may work for other inflammatory immune-related immune diets or diseases. I won't bore you with this, but it looks fairly simple here. And sure, it's fairly simple. You can eat these foods and you've got to avoid these. Now, I have to digress for a moment. I'm a pediatrician, proud to be a pediatrician, and uh, I've done a lot of work in IBD. When my adult colleagues invite me to speak at one of their meetings, it's generally to be on a panel and I'm the nutrition guy. You know, I get a pat on the head and I can sit there. Um, I give more, I guess I'm considered to be more authoritative than our RDs, which is probably a mistake. Um, but I sit there and I behave well. Um, just before coming to New York, I was invited to such a meeting and it was a, a focused on adult patients. There were some parents there of my patients um, and I gave my talk. And I mentioned when it came to this diet that one parent has, been, has said that it takes her 18 to 20 hours a week to prepare this food. One of the mothers in the audience started shaking a hand and raising a hand. I knew her, I knew her well, and I was afraid to call on her. Okay, I was afraid I had said something that might have offended her because she was a strong advocate. But I called on her. And her response to me was, I wish it only took 18 to 20 hours. Okay. So how is this informative? Well, it informs me that this mother is spending in excess of 20 hours a week preparing this. My other mothers, other mothers on these diets, whether they're my patients or somebody else's patients, aren't spending that time. So the diet, it's hard to imagine that they're comparable. And now the Mediterranean diet. I have issues with this terminology only because there are 21 countries here and the cuisines, I guess is the better term, are not all the same. Nonetheless, this is a, the diets in this region are high in good things. And as we look at it, they seem to be generally low in processed foods, bad things. And um, there's evidence recently published, Jim Lewis published uh, evidence that, I think I have on the next one, yeah, a randomized trial comparing the SCD, the specific carbohydrate diet, and the Mediterranean diet just published, um, basically showed that neither was superior to the other. They were both pretty much equal. Um, so we have these diets here. What can one say about them? Um, 
We also have, and I put this up just to annoy Jeffrey, uh, healthy, varied diet with minimal additives and foods. It's never, not really been examined. You might consider that somewhat what the Mediterranean diet is. But as I look at these things, I don't know what this is. I don't know what the, and I know my friends are going to be very upset with me when I say that. But um, I think that a strong case can be made to focusing our efforts and energies on reducing the additives in diets and preparing for everyone. Remember, we talked first slide health, you know, we, we want to help everybody. We want to help our patients, but, but we will help them if we prepare and can convince families, not just the families, groups, everybody to enjoy a more healthy diet. So I think that based on some strong evidence, and I didn't dwell on this at the beginning, um, but I, I perhaps should have, um, you know, with the huge number of deaths associated with COVID and the huge number of those that were associated with nutrition-related uh, uh, diseases, uh, it, it, it brings home the importance of trying to get to look beyond just our patients with specific illnesses and focus on everybody, okay? The, the focus has to be on young families. Okay. We have to bear in mind the impact of social determinants of health because we have to make sure that we can spout, we can be poetic about all of the foods we would like to eat and everything else. But um, if our families don't understand what we want them to eat, if they don't have the wherewithal to provide it. Remember, I talked about the TV dinner that I enjoyed as a young child. And that bought for my mother probably an hour or hour and a half of time coming home from work where she didn't have to cook. Um, there are lots of families headed by men and women. People shared responsibilities for cooking and preparing foods, but they're working and they don't have time to prepare, to spend 18 or 20 hours a day on special diets. So our education and our uh, approach must be mindful of these social determinants. We should be very careful when we recommend therapeutic diets or when we allow our patients on therapeutic diets, not because they're bad, okay? That's not my intention of saying they're bad. Okay, but they mean different things to different people. That's what I just was trying to illustrate. And uh, they mean different things to people from different cultures, and they mean different things to people within the same culture. So that is a strong deterrent for me to, to, to spend excessive effort on teaching these therapeutic diets. We do, but I think that our focus, we want, what we want to accomplish over the next year, um, uh, my nutritionist, Sally Dawson, who's just great, uh, she and I, and mostly that means she, we're working on trying to plan handouts to get information on what additives, or what, what additives are in foods. It's almost impossible to learn. But we want to try and focus on healthy eating. Uh, and that's essentially what I, this is a repetition. We want the diets to be obtainable, affordable, sensible, appeal to people, um, eliminate to the extent possible additives, and especially for, and I think that a case can be specifically made for trying to, you know, for reading labels and trying to avoid the carboxymethylcellulose, the P80. And I am certainly not a fan of carrageenan. Who do you go to for advice? Okay. Who knows this stuff? Okay. The nutritional expertise that has to be 
sought after is the registered dietitian. When your patient comes in and tells you they've been to a nutritionist or they're consulting a nutritionist, it means different things. There's no national certifying agency for the quote nutritionist. And it's very worrisome. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics defines a registered dietitian as an individual who has met, and then I'll belabor this, they have specific academic requirements. They know what they're doing. They have to be continually uh, recertified. Um, and so that's the kill the key. I believe my next slide is what I term my favorite slide. We have to be reasonable about this, okay? Um, we, we live in a world that's complex, and I'm just talking about a small portion of it. Okay? So as my two colleagues uh, or hereditary or ancient colleagues sitting here say, for those of you who might not be able to read it, something's just not right. Our air is clean. Our water is pure. We all get plenty of exercise. Everything we ate is organic and free range, and yet nobody lives past 30. Um, so there's more to this than just <clears throat> what meets the eye. I want to thank you for your patience. Um, I'll leave this up and I'll let um, the people, Jeff and everybody else who's running this, uh, take it down into part. Any questions you have that um, we don't answer this after, uh, this morning, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to entertain them. Uh, this is my email address. And um, that's thank it. You, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Neil. That was really, really uh, excellent. And I love that, that, your favorite slide. I think that is absolutely correct. Uh, there is a, the first question we have is uh, from one of our pediatricians. How is xanthan gum classified? I believe it's well. It's a, if it's approved, it doesn't matter whether it's GRAS or um, uh, a food additive. In essence, the either di either designation <clears throat> allows the same use. Uh, the manufacturers have to indicate how they're going to use the food, uh, use that additive. And um, there's still some things that get GRAS certified, and it's, it's, it's not clear, um, and I don't want to give you misinformation, um, but it is a food additive, it's approved, and um, uh, it may be GRAS, I'm not certain. Great, thanks. Uh, you know, a comment that, that I have is uh, in, in terms of social determinants of health, you know, clearly for for our kids in the, in, in our, in the poor areas of, uh, of the state, and certainly inner city kids, it is very difficult to uh, for 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 those families to secure foods that would be classified within the groups that you consider the right the right ones. Uh, they're you know, they're food deserts where it's really hard for them to buy. It is much more expensive. Absolutely. So the, the easiest thing to do is to you know obviously go to, to the local McDonald's and, and and can you comment on that and the effect that that potentially has had on uh, inflammatory bowel disease and other other inflammatory conditions? It's hard to know uh, any specific. Um, uh, it, but I think the issue of the social determinants, I could have spent an hour easily on that alone, especially as it applies to food. Um, I'm not a fan of any of these places, uh, McDonald's and so forth. It's implied. If you look at the data, the, the, the specific therapeutic diets that give you one or two free days, they don't tell you what you can eat in those one or two free days. Um, it's troubling. There's some data right now that in, that suggests that if you have a healthy microbiome because you're eating all these healthy foods and then you perturb it by eating something bad for a day or so and then go back to the regular diet, uh, your therapeutic diet or your healthy diet, you're okay. 
my general advice has always been and continues to be moderation. Don't go to an extreme, one or the other extremes. Having said moderation, I think that may not be adequate when it comes to some of the to the food additives. All I want to know, I'd be happy to just be able to know what's in the food additives. You start reading these labels, you can't tell what's in the foods. You know, they don't use the same names. Uh, and this is stuff that are, you know, that, that's regulatory in nature. It could be, um, it could be, um, you know, stuff that Congress could do something about. I think that everybody else is a little bit preoccupied at the moment uh, with what's going on. But I think it's unacceptable to me that I look at a package and uh, I'm pretty, you know, I like to think of myself as being, you know, somewhat above uh, average in my understanding. Okay. And I can't figure out, I can't figure it out. If somebody comes to me and hands me a package and I look at it and I start reading it, I don't know what it is. So uh, two comments, uh, Dr. Emmerich, one of our gastroenterologists is carrageen is in McDonald's milkshakes and ice cream. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe it's a question or a statement. I'm not sure. Um, I would assume it could be either, but it, it, I, I certainly would hazard. Uh, I'm not surprised if it is, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend to know. Got it. Uh, from another pediatrician, Dr. Scherzer says, can you comment on infant formula in terms of optimal quality with respect to potential intestinal inflammation? Okay. Well, when it comes to infant formula, those parents of mine who are on infant formula, where the babies are on infant formula, I usually advise them to buy the least expensive formula that they can. Uh, the By law, what we know is essential nutrients has to be in all of these uh, infant formulas. Uh, years ago, when I was I, not in my biographical sketch, but I did two years of general pediatrics, actually. And, um, uh, and I would uh, advocate for pure infant formula, breastfeeding or infant formula for the first year or nine months or whatever. Now, with the, uh, some of the dietary deficiencies noted in some of our fancy formulas, um, I have flipped if a person, uh, and I'm anxious to introduce more variety sooner rather than later. It also is consistent with oral, developing oral tolerance. Uh, so I'm not, I'm appalled at the cost of the infant formulas. I believe I'm correct if I say that the number one item shoplifted in, sh in supermarkets is infant formula. Hmm. Uh, I can't have made that up. I must have read that someplace. And if you go and if you and if you go to the market, sometimes you see the infant formulas in a glass case with a uh, uh, key. Uh, I certainly have seen that. And it's just demoralizing. And the patients and the parents who go out and, you know, a kid has a little bit of bellyache or spits up a little bit, and they go from formula A to B to C to D to E. To, and if it's E that they're on at the time that this um, functional problem, they, they become more mature, that's the best formula in the world. Um, and uh, so I advise them to buy the least expensive. I spend some time trying to explain why um, I cringe when I hear, and you know, and these things can be just twenty-seven dollars a can. I, recently, somebody had—I mean, terrible, terrible. And and every parent is the same. Uh, there's nothing they wouldn't do for their infant. And I have um, more often—I have on multiple occasions advised them to put that money in an educational fund. And it's not tongue-in-cheek. I say to them, that'll do more for your child than giving them this fancy formula. I don't know that the formula manufacturers are that happy when I say that, but they don't have to worry because I don't think that many people are paying attention to me. Thank you. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to pass it on to you to uh, close the session. So thank you so much. Uh, and Neil, that was wonderful. And, and again, I think it emphasizes what is the greatest environmental exposure that 
we that may be damaging to us. Uh, yes, air is important, water is important, but it's the food that we eat every single day. Um, and, I, and I wouldn't limit bad food choices to the inner city. I have to say, yeah. bad food choices are everywhere because they're fast, they're easy, um, and they're less expensive. But I think as pediatricians in particular, we have an incredible responsibility to advocate as best we can. And I will tell you, it's a struggle in my own home with my teenager for, for healthy eating. Well, thank you again uh, to both of you. Uh, outstanding Grand Rounds. Greatly appreciate everyone who joined us. Uh, please be safe, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.